Sun as a backup. You have your backup Capri Sun ready? It's all good. <laughs> Sorry, game on. Welcome to the Duke and Duchess podcast. Welcome back. We are in episode 122, where we will be covering chapters 8 through 10 of Gardens of the Moon by Stephen Erickson. On our next book club, we will be covering book four of Gardens of the Moon. That is chapters 11 through 13. My name is Chad. That's Liz. Yes. <laughs> we forgot that part. Our spoiler policy is that Liz has read these books, but I have not read these books, so we will not spoil anything past chapter 10 of Gardens of the Moon. Nothing from the greater uh, Malazaverse. Is that, a, is that the right way to say it? Maliverse? I think Maliverse. Maliverse? Let's think about that, folks. Let's, let's, get, let's get our crack team on that. <laughs> so what'd you think of this section? So uh, going through this book, book three, it felt still felt like a lot of setup was kind of happening. Um, some major events yeah. and some storylines... Um, but not as much as I've remembered at this point in the book. But let's go. Uh, we're starting a book, so we have an epigraph kind of at the beginning. Mm-hmm, yep, um, mm-hmm. So if you want, we can kind of get into that a little bit. Yeah, let's do it. So the epigraph for book three goes a little something like this. Marionettes dance a field beneath masterly hands. I stumble among them, crossed by the strings in tangled two-step, and curse all these fools in their mad pirouette. I shall not live as they do, oh no, leave me in my circled dance. These unbidden twitchings you see, I swear on Hood's grave, is artistry in motion. And that is from Sayings of the Fool. Well, the fool does not realize he's at the end of the rope. Yeah, so in this epigraph, we have the speaker, who's a fool, seems to be condemning others for being puppets, Mm -hmm. while he himself is twitching in a circle to another's tune. So like the, the author of this, the fictional author, not Steven Erickson, uh, is criticizing those who are blind to the powers that influence them and control them while hypothetically putting others down for being controlled mm-hmm. or hypocritically putting others down for being controlled. So um, it's really fitting for this book in this section. We've got all these characters who are, you know, setting plots into motion, but most of them are largely unaware of the powers who are pulling their strings. Also, there's one character who is literally a puppet, so yeah. <laughs> it just works on so many levels. It, yeah, it does. Yeah, I read that and thought, is this specifically a reference to Herlock, or is it a more general? I mean, I think uh, it just works, I think however it, <laughs> you want to take it. But we also have chapter eight, which starts with a snapter like they all do, but let's not do that. Let's let's stick to the, let's stick to the program. <laughs> And would you like to give us our chapter summary for chapter eight? Yes, chapter eight. In chapter eight, Whiskey Jack and the Bridge Burners prepare to sneak into Jerugistan. They're abandoning the Empire's plans and adopting one of their own. Whiskey Jack is surprised to learn that he has the support of the mysterious Moranth, and he enlists their help in his scheme. Quick Ben has a disturbing meeting with Herlock deep in the Warren of Chaos. 
He learns about the attack on Tattersail, but his control over the mad puppet seems to be slipping. He proposes a change of plans to Whiskey Jack as the crew begins their arduous journey across the lake, armed with gumption and a big box of explosives. <laughs> I feel like gumption and explosives, I mean, they go so well together. Really? What is gumption without explosives? I mean, it's getting your ass kicked in a Texaco bathroom is what it is. <laughs> I had explosives and never would happen. <laughs> so what was your overall impression of what we read? So I, I agree with you that it's we're still getting an awful lot of setup for sort of as late in the novel as we are. Uh, you know, we haven't really gotten sort of into the thick of the plot. It's just there's so much to introduce. But I didn't really I didn't really think of it that way until I, I guess I should say I didn't really noticed that until kind of going through and and piecing it together because we're about at the midway point of the book Mm -hmm. you know and i think also the fact that this section is called the mission but very little of the mission itself unfolds at all right however i didn't i didn't feel that kind of while reading it Mm -hmm. i didn't really notice it i just sort of you know, enjoyed kind of getting back to some of the bridge burners and, and Captain Perron and and finding out some of the other the other characters. I, I definitely am anxious to get a little deeper into it and read more to see how this is going to all play out. So chapter eight starts with a snapter as well. Uh-huh. Do you want me to read that? It's a little bit longer or do you want to? Uh, I'll just read the part that I only have a comment on one sort of section. Go ahead. And it's it's really the very beginning. He stepped down then among women and men, the sigil stripped in her foul cleansing. There on the blood-soaked sand spilled the lives of emperor and first sword. So it seems to me that this is, now I, I might be getting, I like who the first sword is and who Dancer is, I get mixed up all the time. Right. Um, but it's my understanding, I'm taking this, that it's sort of relaying that Lacine somehow summoned Dancer from Hood through some sort of magical means and then had him assassinate the Emperor in First Sword. But I forget, is Decim Altor the First Sword or is he Dance? I, I That part I get uh, confused. So I interpreted this differently. I interpreted it as being about Whiskey Jack. It talks about him stepping down, um, having his sigil stripped in her foul cleansing. Um, And then it goes on. Well, it's also it's from a piece called The Bridge Burners, which the first stanza we read was obviously about the bridge burners. It talks about him being of the old guard commanding the honed edge of Empire's fury, and that he stepped down but not away. To me, that kind of describes Whiskey Jack's situation as we know it, Um, which makes the last stanza particularly interesting to me because in stepping down but not away, he remains the remembrance before her eyes, the curse of conscience she would not stand, which is really where Whiskey Jack and the Bridge Burners are right now. They're kind of the last vestige of the old guard uh, that served under the old emperor that Lacine wants gone 
because she doesn't want that reminder anymore. So the last stanza uh, makes me wonder if this indicates what their future is or something that's yet to be revealed to us. Um, It goes on to say, a price was placed before him that he glanced over in first passing, unknowing and so unprepared in stepping down among women and men, he found what he'd surrendered and damned its awakening. So for me, at this point in the book, it raises a lot of questions. If this is about Whiskey Jack, and if this is uh, the situation that is going to be unfolding before us, you know, what is the price before him? Um, what does he surrender? What is he awakening? It's a, ni- it's a nice little teaser. Yeah, yeah. If you go with that interpretation. The right one. <laughs> yeah, that's that's way better than what I came up with. <laughs> I've read it a couple times. <laughs> <laughs> so let's let's get into the next section where we start with Whiskey Jack and Quick Ben. So uh, the first thing I picked up was that in the first couple of words, uh, Whiskey Jack's rank is mentioned. And mm. so coming off of that snapter, at least the way that, that I read it, where it was all about, you know, the fact that he stepped down and that he was demoted, um, I thought that was significant. Mm. Yeah, that makes sense. The first thing I noted was the Moranth call him bird that steals. <laughs> bird that badass. steals. Yeah. You tread the enemy's shadow. And, and I guess my question then is, is that phrase, bird that steals, is it a reference specifically to Whiskey Jack, or is it a reference more to folk from the Empire generally? Because it makes more sense to me if it's the latter, because bird, the symbol is a bird's claw, and what does the Empire do except go in and steal things? Whereas I have a harder time relating that specifically to Whiskey Jack. So maybe not the nickname, but what I took it as referring to Whiskey Jack, and what I took away from this conversation that they have with the Moranth was that Whiskey Jack uh, has a history with the Moranth mm-hmm. that we are not privy to, or at least we don't know the full story. So they tell Whiskey Jack that they will always help him. And they say, you are well known to us, Bridge Burner. You tread the enemy's shadow. Mm-hmm. So that, to me, that's the Moranth saying that they are they owe Whiskey Jack personal loyal, a sense of personal loyalty to Whiskey Jack and the Bridge Burners. They also tell him that the one-armed Moranth who fought with Whiskey Jack in Nathalog still lives. And the first time we saw the Moranth, we saw Whiskey Jack asking about mm-hmm. this Moranth. And when Whiskey Jack then asks the, the Black Moranth whether or not it would be possible, randomly, any, any off chance. Hypothetically. Hypothetically. Could you guys be possibly randomly patrolling this area sometime in the, ne- in the next two weeks. And the Moran says that, oh, it just happens that I will personally be leading an unscheduled random patrol of this area <laughs> in two weeks. And Whiskey Jack seems surprised, but the Black Moranth tells him we are not so unalike. In our eyes, deeds have measure. We judge. We act on our judgments. In pale, we match spirit with spirit. What I thought was interesting about that interaction is I felt like the Black Moranth was quite clear in what he meant. And Whiskey Jack was like, "Mm, don't follow. (laughs) What do you mean? I mean, do you blame him? (laughs) He's like, we are not, we are not so unalike you and I. 
We have the same desires, the same honor. Uh, I don't get you. Like, <laughs> what? There's nothing to not get. Like, so the Black Moranth also uh, goes on to justify what happened in Pale. So in Pale, we, we opened up on that battle and they had just won. And the Moranth were going through and just slaughtering the citizens. And that was like their price um, for teaming up with the Empire, with that, that they would be allowed to do this in the mm-hmm. city of Pale. Yeah. So he justifies it to Whiskey Jack by saying um, that they killed the exact number of citizens as Moranth who have been destroyed by the city of Pale. It's a longstanding rivalry between the two. Um, it was 18,739 citizens that were killed. I'm just saying I'd like to check the math on that. <laughs> you want a hand recount? Uh, well, I'm just saying I, I hear you, but is it, you know, is it 18,000 people like who died at the hands of people in Pale? Or are you being like, well, you guys, you know, you guys came in and because of it, we missed a harvest and... <laughs> 10,000 people die. We're taking it out on you, you know, like. Either way, what I really like about this scene is just the narrative layering that happens here. You know, we've got this history between Whiskey Jack and the Morant that's hinted at. um, And then we also have Whiskey Jack's plans for the future that are being hinted at as well. So it's really nicely done here. The Black Morant also says, there are worms within your empire's flesh. But such degradation is natural in all bodies. Your people's infection is not yet fatal. It can be scoured clean. The Moranth are skilled at such efforts. Does this mean that the Moranth will be helping Lacine to uproot the infection, to uproot dissent and rebellion? I don't know. Sounds kind of ominous. Like, the first part is like, you know, it's like the uh, shout-out Mapes saying, you have a traitor among you. You know, and the second part is like, we are going to be the Inquisition to find that traitor. Like, See, I took it the other way around. Like, they don't support Lacine. Lacine is the the infection that is corrupting the mm. Empire, especially if they are kind of expressing their loyalty to the bridge burners who were loyal to the first emperor. In that case, they're saying, hey, the Morant are skilled at such efforts, like overthrowing evil tyrants. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was the way that I took it. That makes more sense. So the last thing I had about this little scene is Whiskey Jack calls his people together and he's talking about, you know, they're going to change their plans. He's made a decision. He's abandoning what he was told to do. Um, And he asks if anyone knows anything about fishing. And Sari speaks up that she used to do that a long time ago. Well, she doesn't even say that. She just says, I do. Um, so, so somewhere, the Fisher girl is somewhere in there. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, that's just a little bit, a little tidbit there. So then we have Quick Ben falling into the Warren of Chaos. Yeah, he sets up his little ritual. He's got his sticks all positioned mm-hmm. just the right way. And then, and then bam, next thing you know, he's in the Warrens of Chaos at the Spar of Andee. Mm-hmm. Now that caused me to think. The Spar of Andy, does that in any way indicate that the T-Sandy are somehow from the Warrens of Chaos or have a relationship with Chaos more generally? Or is that, you know, the fact that it's the same name not really mean anything at all? 
That is a good question. I mean, for all I know, it's it's like Teast Smith, mm. and I just <laughs> I'm just not from here. <laughs> and I probably shouldn't look too deeply into it. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, I don't think that that is a totally out there speculation. So Quick Ben says to uh, Herlock, how does it feel standing in the middle of all that creation, but unable to touch it, to use it? It's too alien, isn't it? It burns you with every reach. I'll master it, Herlock hissed. You know nothing. You know nothing, Jon Snow. So what I thought was noteworthy in this scene is that Herlock is still confused about why Peron's sword was able to hurt the hound. I am too. And um, Quick Ben doesn't know about it either, uh, which tells me that neither of them know about Opon's interference in this. That Opon blessed his sword. I'm pretty sure it's because Opon did something to Peron's sword. It certainly could be as simple as that. But if that's the case, I don't feel like that was clearly communicated to me. Mm-hmm. Having said that, it would be very easy for a you know a god theoretically to just sort of speak into existence. Mm-hmm. But the way it was expressed when Peron was in you know at Hood's gate and Opon came up, the lady and the and the and the dude, and they said uh, you know they spoke about the sword, why it was your sword, as though it was something that sort of pre-existed them. I got the impression that you know this is like some you know, mythical ancient sword that just happened to end up at the pawn shop around the corner from Peron's house. Well, yeah, that's not been made clear to us at this point. But yeah. we know it has something to do with Opon. Yeah, I think him getting the sword hands down is Opon, but but why it has this power, mm-hmm. you know, I have no idea. But Because we learn in this section also, you know, we learn about Lorne's sword, and it has some, you know, particular... Yes. Abilities as well. I don't seem to, I don't know if it's the same as this one. I, I mean. It is not. No. Lauren's sword, I think, has more to do with the metal. Y- yeah, that was the way I, the way I took it as well. Yeah. Also, Herlock is also quite intimidated by it. You know, yes. like he, he won't, it's not only that he doesn't know, but I think, I think probably because he doesn't know. And he saw what it did to Gear. Mm-hmm. He's terrified by it. Yeah, which I f- sort of feel like is strange. You know, if you're such a powerful mage, because I don't care how sharp the sword is. You know, if you're a, a wizard, you p- should be able to kill a 24 year old dude with a really badass sword. Like I, I don't, you know. But again, I don't really understand why it's special. So it makes it hard to speculate. Well, I think it speaks to how powerful the Hounds of Shadow are. That the fact that any weapon, well, I mean, as powerful as we know Tattersail is, she was like crumpled before this hound. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Didn't stand a chance against mm-hmm. it. And Peron comes in with a what's what, a seemingly mortal sword and wounds it badly. Yeah, So yeah. I, to me, that kind of speaks to how powerful the Hounds are, that just seeing that was enough to keep Hairlock from... Attacking Tattersail. You know, I feel like Erickson does a lot of that in this book mm-hmm. uh, of expressing to you how powerful somebody is by sort of showing you other like really powerful people who are mm-hmm. afraid of them, you yes. know, or or who or like building somebody up as being very powerful 
and then have them walk on the scene and just get absolutely mm-hmm. smacked aside by something greater and more powerful. Mm-hmm. I feel like that's a pretty common thing that he does. Yeah. And it even happens, I think, later in this section with Caladan Brood and Anamander Rake. Mm-hmm. So after this, we go back to Whiskey Jack sort of briefly, and it's them sort of getting ready to take off, and, mm-hmm. you know, there's a whole joke with the bargast, and he's too heavy, and, you know, <laughs> and they also, they talk about their intimidation at attempting to cross Lake Azure, which mm-hmm. is, you know, practically an inland sea. It's huge. Mm-hmm. It's massive. And Whiskey Jack's, Whiskey Jack says, can you rig us a sail? Uh, there's no wind. And he says, well, maybe there will be. Uh, yes, sorry, answered. Uh, we have some canvas. We'll need to make a mast. My, This is a nitpicky little thing, but... Oh, boy. But with boats that are like... Like, they're already in the water. Like, I, you just don't go chop down a tree and bolt it to the bottom of a boat and call it a mast. Like, it's going to... That's going to take a lot of time to retrofit a mast onto an old fishing boat. I'm sorry. This is for anyone who's not a dungeon master. <laughs> like we're going to move past that. It's not important, <laughs> but I wrote it down. Do you have that on your list of items? Do you have a mast <laughs> on your list of items? <laughs> oh, now's when the complaints come out about my- <laughs> Um. No, I, first of all, I don't think the boat was in the water, and we don't need to spend a very long time on this because it is nitpicky. But it doesn't. Yeah, it doesn't. I, what really I matter. understood was that the problem was they had loaded all of their stuff into the boat, and then they couldn't get it into the water. So they they had put all of their equipment, boxes of heavy explosives, all of their stuff. They had put it into the boat way back from the shoreline, and then they were all watching this one person trying to shove it into the water by himself and making fun of him. Well, they told him to unload it and re- right. reload it, but... And Whiskey Jack came back and was like, yeah. you assholes. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was a, it was an asshole move. On to chapter nine. So chapter nine's snapter goes like this. Have you seen the one who stands apart, cursed in a ritual, sealing his kind? Beyond death the host, amassed and whirling, like a plague of pollen he stands apart. The first among all, ever veiled in time, yet outcast and alone. A Talan Imas wandering like a seed unfallen. And this is the Lay of Onos Tulan by Tak the Younger. This is our introduction to Onos Tulan, who we meet in this section. Did I mention that this book has fucking zombies? Yeah. What's up with the undead skeletal warriors? Zombies. An, an army of mostly silent skeletal warriors that creep up from the ground? Oh, yeah. We are hitting uh, the horror movie every note, every beat. <laughs> yeah. The, we have Cujo. We do, yeah. The uh, the introduction of the Talanamas, you know, by reaching up from the ground and then like shoving his sword right through the enemy's taint. So fucking metal. <laughs> you know, I mean. <laughs> that was pretty has cool. Has a hell of an introduction. <laughs> so, chapter nine summary. Talk the Younger and Lorne make their way to Pale after surviving an attack by a group of Bargast warriors. The Bargast are fierce humanoid fighters who are fond of face tattoos and fight alongside powerful shamans at the behest of 
sorry, can I start that over? I feel like I said shamans. You said shamans. I said shamans. Shaman. I want a shaman with you. Oh, yeah. Carl, <laughs> give me my shaman. <laughs> okay. Oh, God, I'm laughing. Carl. <laughs> the shaman's here for lunch. Get the brisket. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, I'm good. Oh. <clears throat> <clears throat> Tuck, the younger, and Lorne make their way to Pale after surviving an attack by a group of bar guests. <laughs> you can't do it, can you? I'm good. Oh, I didn't get out. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, I'm fine. Do, 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 do. <laughs> Tuck, the younger. <laughs> I can't speak. <clears throat> Tuck the Younger and Lorne make their way to Pale after surviving an attack by a group of Bargast warriors. The Bargast are fierce humanoid fighters who are fond of face tattoos and fight alongside powerful shamans at the behest of Caladan Brood. This group is about to overpower Lorne when Tuck the Younger and the Talan Imas Onos Tulan save the day. Finally in Pale, they attend a very awkward dinner party where Lorne attempts to have Tattersail executed over the deaths of her family in the mouse quarter of Malaz City. Tayshren and Jujak intervene, and Lorne instead heads off to Jerugistan. Tattersail heads to Jerugistan as well, but not before getting a little action from Captain Peran. Tool the zombie opens up to Lorne, and Crone the Great Raven creeps on Caladan Brood as events continue to unfold. Shaman. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Carl. <laughs> All right, let's see. So we watch this, and Talk the Younger comes on these these Bargast, which I still don't really know what they are other than big humans. They're big. They're just big kind of, like, nomad-like humans. And the Crimson Guard and the Bargas are supposed to be 400 leagues to the north. Man, that's a lot of leagues. But they ain't. But they ain't. And then in the middle of nowhere, and that's a common theme in this section, mm-hmm. in the Rivi Plain in the middle of goddamn nowhere, mm-hmm. surrounded by nothing at all, two people, you know, in a sea of grass happen to find each other at just the right exact moment. Mm-hmm. But it's not coincidence. You know, it's not coincidence right. that this is happening. So I'm like, how in the hell are they finding, you know, Lorne and like four dudes in this sea of nothing? Mm-hmm. Uh, but it turns out, we, as we find out later, that they were looking for the presence of the Talana Mas. Is that how you present it? How are you saying it? That's how I'm saying it. Okay. Um, it wasn't, it didn't appear to be Lorne specifically mm-hmm. at all. At least they were drawn to the area because of that. And then I'm sure when they saw uh, Lorne, they uh, they went ahead and attacked. And dude, those like I felt really sorry for those dudes protecting Lorne. Yes. Like you know, I'm like, man, that that's just a shitty. That is a shitty, a job. shitty job, man. <laughs> they did it well, but holy, holy crap. Yep. 
And uh, and then yeah, we as we mentioned, we we meet uh, Tul Olan Uman, whose name I will never remember. Uh, the Talana Mas Tool. Uh, Tool, uh, who introduces himself by shoving three feet of steel into <laughs> into the taint. Actually, it's stone, isn't it? The swords are made of like flint or something like that. So I don't know. It shoves it into one of the bar gas. That's a terrible way to die. It's a terrible way. To horrible, die. horrible way to die. <laughs> uh, and then you know, so we get this impression of this like super awesome, you know, undead. 300,000 year old mm-hmm. creature. That like that's a number that's just not even fathomable. Mm-hmm. Like to be to be that old it's, it's just insane. Think about how little we know about history from 2000 years ago mm-hmm. and then imagine something existing for 300,000 years. It's, mm-hmm. it's insane. Anyway, so this is super crazy. Then we get talk the younger who 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 comes up and sort of sees this and he is like, you know, dumbfounded by this creature that is basically like he, he knew that they existed, mm-hmm. but he'd never seen one. And this guy shows up on the scene and Lauren is like, you were late. You're late. Yeah. <laughs> like <laughs> She's hardcore. She's something. She's something. <laughs> I got, I got a lot to say about her, but that's, that's all my comments about this particular section. I love there's a there's a, a a moment in this scene where Tak is he's first come upon the the dead Bargast and the dead Marines and it's like okay here's a whole bunch of badass people that all killed each other yeah and there's mm-hmm. more of them out there and he knows he's got to ride after them and there's a moment where he's sitting there and he's scratching his scar his his itchy scar from where he lost his eye. And he talks and thinks about how he's scratching it, even though he knows the itch is just going to return anyway. And then trotting off after the surviving Bargast, even though he knows he's probably not going to survive. That was just such a, a nice bit of symbolism there. Yeah. Yeah, that itchy scar comes up a lot in yeah. this section. There's That thing is like a thermometer. Like, yeah. it's a gauge for like what's going on. So we get a little a tidbit here, too, about Talk's father... And that he is only mostly dead, or <laughs> the fact that he's been presumed dead. Yeah, um, yeah. And that everyone is assuming that, but um, Talk reminds us that that he's only really missing. We also learn about Lorne's a Totarl sword. Yeah. Otatarl. 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 I like that. Yes, Otatarl sword, which kills magic um, and mages. But it's not wine, widely known about. Yeah, and it seems to prevent magic from being able to be cast upon her mm-hmm. because she injures herself in this, you know, exchange. And later, she asks for you know to 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 see a healer, um, but she says, "But bring me to a mundane healer, you know, mm-hmm. just a just a regular doctor who went through eight Some years rude. of medical school and a residency. Some you know mundane doctor <laughs> didn't." didn't get his medical skills from the bottom of a Cracker Jack box. <laughs> uh, so it seems like magic doesn't work on her either. Yes. So uh, in this next little scene, we have Paran and Tattersail, both conscious at the same time. Um, and they kind of start to piece together what happened in the last uh, in- interaction. And they're talking about Paran's sword. This is kind of 
significant. Um, he says that he bought it three years ago, but that he hasn't used it, but that he named it Chance without he, knowing why. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So Opon was in the game that far back? Or that's what caught Opon's attention. Mm, yeah. Maybe. Mm. So my first note in here is Peron talking about Hairlock. A suspicion nagged him that the dog wasn't dead, that it would be back. The puppet ignored most of his questions. And when it did speak to him, it was to voice dire threats. <laughs> like, that's what Hairlock does, right? He's a dick, right? But it, it's his constant threats of violence and revenge that convince me that he will make every decision in the favor of what brings him the most power without regard to anything else. A- absolutely. That's- I think that is definitely true about Hairlock. Yeah, he's got one very simple goal. Mm-hmm. Whatever makes him, whatever enables him to wreak the the greatest amount of revenge mm-hmm. upon people who do not adequately respect his awesome power. Yeah. But then we get Tattersail sort of awaking, awakening from like a six day long power nap. But that's a hell of a power nap, right? <laughs> It says, uh, Peron studied her round, ghostly, pale face. There was something about her that seemed to disregard her physical mundanity. Overwhelmed it, in fact. So that the captain found himself responding in ways that surprised him. There's nothing like the pale, sweaty attention of a feverish woman in her sickbed to get the youthly hormones flowing. <laughs> I, t- <laughs> I mean, These men really to be won't fair, fuck anything. Does it take much to get the youthly hormones? No, it doesn't. It truly doesn't. Yeah. <laughs> and then he says um, a little bit later, she smiled. This is after they sort of officially, you know, meet, you know, greet each other. She smiled. It is good to meet you. He scowled. She was at it again. <laughs> oh, you saucy minx with your <laughs> greetings. <laughs> So the next section, we have Tok and Lorne uh, returning back. But now they are in Pale, and they're meeting with uh, with Dujek. Right, and the situation in Pale is tense. Uh, apparently, Tayshren has ordered that nine-tenths of the nobility of Pale be hanged, including the children. He's becoming a, a major problem though, that Dujek is having to handle. Uh, we also get another tidbit about the Moranth. Uh, it turns out they don't want to fight Caladan Brood because he is too honorable. Too honorable. Too honorable. That brooding Caladan. Only fight assholes. 18,000 of them. Yeah, 739 we, yeah. assholes. Every single one. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> we made sure. They were all tax collectors. Every one of them. <laughs> they were all internet trolls. I promise. <laughs> we also find out that it looks like they consolidated... The second, fifth, and sixth into one army, I believe the newly constituted fifth. Uh, and they're discussing disbanding the bridge burners. Mm-hmm. But that sort of causes me to think are there cadre mages for the fifth and sixth, just like there were for the second? I would assume that there are. Mm-hmm. Will we ever get to see them? I, I mean, obviously, don't know. You, you know, can't answer that. But it's just something I hadn't really thought about until now. But there are, you know, probably, you know, half a dozen other mages running around. Then we have, a little bit later, we have uh, Talk and Lorne and Dujek 
all meeting together, Dujek with his one arm, Tok with his one eye, mm-hmm. and Lorne with her dislocated elbow. And they say, here they were, representatives of three of the four empire powers on the continent. And they all looked like Hood's heralds. And I asked, what are the four powers then? The army, the empress, the claw, and the mages? Or are the mages wrapped up in the army? Would it be the cult of the claw? But the claw, so I'm I'm just a little unsure of what the four great powers are. I feel like the, the mages might be. That seems to be the most obvious. Yeah. And then, oh, you mentioned uh, 90% of the nobility are about to be called. Right. I first read that and I thought, ooh, Tashrin has some mercy. Mm. Because in Itko Khan, you know, we were talking with that that one captain and Lorne is like, are you the member of a noble family? And he turned to her and he said, you know the answer to that. If I was, I would have been called. Mm-hmm. Leading me to believe that the Empire comes in and kills 100% of the nobility. Mm-hmm. I, I'm glad to know that's not the case. And frankly, it's it's it creates a situation that's way more interesting. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't something that I was aware of. Well, in, in, a little bit later on in this section, we hear Tattersail thinking about how... Um, the culling of the nobility is usually a tool that is used to get the the general populace on the empire's side because usually what they do is they go through and they take about more likely um, they'll take about 50% of the least liked nobility, um, the ones who mistreated the populace, the ones who cheated them or or for whatever reason were, were disliked by the populace, and then they will, you know... Um, kind of get the, the populace's approval to execute those. Yeah, uh, yeah. And that's kind of like the final step in taking over a city. So the fact that um, Tayshran is coming along kind of randomly and heavy-handedly wiping out nine-tenths of them, including the children. Yeah, which, um, to what end? Is going to, you know, to to not accomplish that goal. That, no. That it, what it's supposed to accomplish. Yeah, it's it seems so random to want to do it. Tayshran's interesting in this section like i feel like you 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 get way more into tashran in this section and he's never really featured well and in this part too i steven erickson does a really good job of showing us how smart dujek is up until now we've kind of been told that but we see him managing people in situations very adeptly here Lauren, of course, offers to step in and take care of Tayshran. And am I going to have to do something about this? And Dujak is like, what are you going to do? You know, but then Tayshran shows up to their meeting and he's, first of all, he's late because Dujak wants him to be late because mm-hmm. he wants some time alone with Lauren to talk to her. Um, but he's late because there was a fire in the Hall of Records where coincidentally all of the... <laughs> The identities and the addresses of the nobility all just happen to be lost. Yeah. So we see Dujek handling that, um, you know, and then as we progress forward in this section and they go into the dinner party, you just see him handling people. Um, and, and Not only that, but, you know, in his descriptions of his battle plans to Lorne, it's really hard to, ra- to write brilliant military strategy air quotes around that Mm -hmm. well do you know what i'm saying Mm -hmm. i think so often in fantasy i'll be you know 
I'll be reading it and they'll be like, this is my brilliant military plan. And I'm like, well, that's kind of dumb. You know, or it yeah. seems, seems kind of obvious, you know, or, yeah, or, it's just not yeah. well done and it ta- really takes you out of it. Mm-hmm. And uh, Steven Erickson does it well though, you know? Or again, it's something we've talked about in the, in other, other podcasts, you know, about other material where we say you attempt to demonstrate somebody's brilliance by making all the people around them stupid. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and that's, that's just not what is done here. No, no. Um, and, and at one point, Lauren and Tayshran are talking about Dujek, about how Dujek is the exception to the, to, to the plan to get, get rid of everyone who came up under the old emperor, oh, yeah. mm-hmm. that Dujek needs to be the exception. And she says, he's a man who cares for those who are he, he is responsible for. He's the best of the empire. And if he's forced to turn, then we're the traitors. And I thought that was a great way of kind of expressing his character. Yeah, that, I think that was pretty powerful, particularly coming from Lorne, who I don't think necessarily, you know, acquits herself in the protagonist category at mm. any step of the no, way. No, you know? So, you know, for that to come out of her mouth, I think is, is pretty powerful. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dujek and Lorne also have a conversation about Tattersail, where, where Dujek says, yeah, she's the only cadre mage to survive Tatrin's assault on Moonspawn. And then Lorne says she wondered if Dujek suspected anything. Mm-hmm. But her next word put her at ease. So confirmation, uh, not really that Tayshran was involved. We know that. But that Lacine was involved. Or at yes. a minimum, that Lorne was involved. Yes. I, I would, I'm assuming that Lorne is not, is, would be involved on Lacine's behalf not yes. she's doing it independently but yes so that Lor- you know that lauren or uh, lacine are involved in this and it was done with the empress's permission so speaking about tayshran's assault we also kind of get this later lauren says tayshran i speak directly from the empress she reluctantly approved your commandeering the assault on moonspawn and then later she says this task the empress has commanded of me or excuse me later he says uh, this task the Empress has commanded of me, it weighs heavily, adjunct. Well, which is it? You know, did the em- Empress command him to take over and lead the assault, or did he request it? Or are these referring to two distinctly different things? It might be two different things. Yeah, not entirely clear. So I guess it, you know, we get the sense that the Empress commanded him to destroy the mages, and then maybe he then insisted on taking command of Pale as a part of that mm-hmm. is the way I'm kind of reading what I'm what I'm hearing. Maybe. And then uh, Lorne also says, the one thing a mage found difficult to understand or cope with was loyalty. And yet there had been one mage long ago who had commanded loyalty, and that was the emperor. And I'm like, ah, okay. So does this explain the Empress and Lorna's disdain for mages? Mm-hmm. That the Emperor was one and they're not? Yeah. And that loyalty obviously is clearly a fear. So the other part of this means if Shadow Throne could show up in person mm-hmm. in the middle of the Empire and reveal himself as who he is, would he be able to, in that form, instantly command loyalty? I, I don't know that we know. I, I don't think Just, we know enough about the Ascendants. Um, 
and how they work at this point, you know, was that something he would even want to do? Yeah, yeah, or could do. Yeah, I, I don't know, but it's just something that crossed my mind when when I was reading this. Yeah, I mean, you don't know how long ascendants can even stay in this realm. And exactly. All yeah. that stuff. So a brief little scene where uh, Tattersail and Peron kind of both recognize that they like each other like that. Yeah. But then she realizes that Peron has been working for Lorne, and then she is summoned to a very awkward dinner party. It's super awkward. It's awkward. This is where, as you as you mentioned, uh, she talks about the purge, saying, uh, no matter how benign the original rulers, no matter how genuine or generous the nobility, the word of empire, weighted by might, twisted the past into a tyranny of demons. Mm-hmm. A sad comment on humanity. That's a very profound statement. It is. It is, isn't it? She also says that this is when, you know, you're talking about the beginning of them starting to kind of flirt with each other. She said, what to do about this captain? At the moment, the man was in the room, seated on the bed behind her, oiling his sword. (laughs) I didn't catch that. I mean, come on. (laughs) She says, perhaps it was that mystery, that uncertainty. Perhaps it was the dank stench of fever in the room that made them so attracted to one another. And the attraction was obvious even now with pools of vomit on the floor. (laughs) Tattersail side. Some of that I may have added. Uh, There's a knock on the door. This is when the summons comes. And the sorceress waves her hand over Captain Perron. You're no longer visible, Captain. Nor can anyone sense your presence. Make no sound and wait here. So what I thought was... uh, Interesting about that was the statement, nor can anyone sense your presence. Seems to me like an indication that being able to sense the presence of a person, even when you can't see them, is sort of a thing in this world, Mm -hmm. which is not something that I think, it's not, I don't recall being overtly mentioned at at any point. Mm -hmm. So just filing that away. And then they, as you said, they have that sort of conflict around uh, Adject Lorne and, and her presence. Damn it, she hissed. You're working for her. The captain's answer was clear as he spun round. She watched him vanish into the bedroom, her thoughts a storm of fury. At this point, it's like, oh no, is he going to attack? Is somebody going to attack? Oh no, there's you know, there's all this you know visible tension. The threat of conspiracy now thrummed in her mind. So, Quick Ben's suspicions had been accurate. A plan was afoot to kill the squad, and Peron was at the center of it. Did that make her life at risk as well? She felt herself nearing a decision. She was going to fuck that man. (laughs) The whole thing with them is very weird and awkward to me. Really? Because I see the words that are on the page, Mm -hmm. but then I see all the other words surrounding those sentences, (laughs) and it's vomit and people thinking they were betrayed and like... She's seconds from wondering if he's going to attempt to stick a sword in her, mm-hmm. and she lets him stick his self in her. <laughs> anyway. I mean, of the two options, what would you pick? I mean, I would definitely pick the latter. <laughs> <laughs> I don't it think is it's- kind of like, it is a very Buffy Angel type thing, <laughs> yeah. which is, you know what? I, I dig it. I'm going with it. So now we go back to ta- uh, Talk the Younger, and we have the actual awkward dinner. I really was so endeared to talk the younger in this scene, you know, his perspective. And he just, he's so, was so like insecure. Um, he's, he's with these people who are, I mean, he's 
representing the claw, but he's not like used to being in charge of the claw or anything. He's just the only claw member here. Yeah. He's, so he's, he's mm-hmm. kind of thrust into this kind of sphere of influence that he's not accustomed to. He was very endearing for me in this scene. And the way that Dujek goes out of his way to make him comfortable was, I thought, very sweet as well. Yeah, he's he's like a kinder, softer version of Sandor Clegane. A lot kinder and softer. <laughs> With his face burned off. <laughs> no, he reminds me of um, Sir Jorah more. Mm-hmm. Without, like, an obsession with his queen. I think this dinner is where I have the most notes. Lay him on me. Starting with, was that Tattersail? <laughs> I knew you were going to, like, write down <laughs> this entire section. <laughs> She's not bad if you like if them you big. If you like them big. <laughs> oh, Steven Erickson, you dog. <laughs> and then, before I had time to recover from that statement, I find out Lorne is only 20. She's only 20 years old. Yeah. If you put together a 30 under 30 list of Imperial bootlickers, mm-hmm. she is number one. She's up there. She's number one. So there's a lot, as we get into this discussion with Lorne and Tattersail, you know, kind of going back and forth and, you know, about what happened when Lorne was a child. You know, there's a lot of stuff that sort of comes out of that confrontation. Mm-hmm. So I was confused because, and this is the part I think I'm still not 100% rock solid on, because wasn't Tattersail like 180 years old or something crazy like that? Mm-hmm. I, I forget exactly what the number is, but she, didn't she and the original emperor like go to the prom together? Like, Yeah, yeah, but she wasn't necessarily in the army. No, no, no. Yeah, clearly not. Because only nine years ago, Mm -hmm. when Lorne was 11 and the mouse quarter Mm -hmm. uh, was apparently her first command as as cadre of mage, right? It says, they were recruits, cadre of mages. They were in Malaz City awaiting their new commander when the master of the claw issued an edict against sorcery. They were sent into the old city, the mouse, to cleanse it. They were, her voice caught, indiscriminate. She swung her attention back to Tattersail. This woman was one of those mages. Sorceress, that night was my last with my family. I was given to the claw the very next day. Mm-hmm. It's almost like the Empress knew what she was doing and did this on purpose. Mm. You know, sending these people recklessly mm-hmm. into the city and then sweeping behind them with the claw to create recruits. Almost like if you're Lorne, you should be more angered at your boss for ordering it and then recruiting you into a, hey, here are your choices. You can die of starvation in the city or Mm -hmm. become a lifetime assassin in our Mm -hmm. cult. Like, I don't know. Maybe you should spend less time worried about Tattersail. Yeah, and it's a very powerful character moment that happens in this scene for Lauren because she's forced to, I mean, she's she's face-to-face with one of the mages who um, is responsible for the death of her family. She's been thinking about this for nine years. But not really. But anyway, well, go ahead. Who you, who, who you believe to be responsible for the death of your family. Who she has blamed for right. the death of her family. Who she has blamed for the death of her family. I am sure that Lazine spun it as, oh, you know... 
I said to ban sorcery. I didn't say to go kill a bunch of bitches. Like, yeah, those mages just went crazy. You mm-hmm. know, I'm sure that's how it's been portrayed. She, you know, she's finally having this confrontation, Lauren is, and Tattersale offers to be executed for it. And Lauren's like, okay. Yeah. Let's go. Let's do this. <laughs> but she is interfered with and she, by Dujek and by Tayshren, who both tell her that, hey, guess what? The, the woman, Lorne, who lost her family, is dead. She's not allowed to exist anymore. You are the will of the Empress, and that's all you are. And You've taken the black. These are your brothers and sisters. That's you, it? You gotta, you know. Just that theme of individuality being swallowed up by by the empire and her be just fully becoming her role uh, is really just powerfully spoken to here. It's a thing that constantly comes up in this book, even Mm -hmm. with, you know, the guys who were protecting Lorne that we talked about earlier, who like, right. I'm going to, I'm going to take a spear through the leg that is going to pin me to the ground, Yep. but I will fight until my brains are smashed in to protect you. you And how does this, this machine of war, how does it sort of motivate people <laughs> to that degree of loyalty? Yeah. When it's not as though it's coming from, you know, it's not the it's not a moral authority. Mm-hmm. You know, there's nothing you can look at that the empire's doing and say, "Oh yes, they're in the more they're morally right. right." I'm sure they I'm sure they spin it that way. Right. They bring order. Yeah, out of I, chaos. I'm and- sure they do. Yeah. So right after this confrontation, Talk comes up to Tattersail, and it says this. Tattersail looked positively ill. She was. She was just vomiting before this confrontation. <laughs> Talk found the decanter and a spare crystal goblet. He walked up to the sorceress. I am Talk the Younger, he said, and you need a drink. <laughs> he poured the glass half full and handed it to her. Often, when we camped on the march, I'd see you lugging that traveling wardrobe of yours and now I see what was in it. Sorceress, you are a sight for sore eyes. Sight for a sore eye. Uh, oh, that's right. He says you're a sight for a sore eye. Okay. That's an opportunity to get that joke in there. Because the way I read it was, hey, girl. Uh, yeah. I know you just cheated death, but narrowly escaping execution has never looked so good. <laughs> Everybody is hitting on Tattersail. Like, while she's still wiping the vomit off the corners of her yeah. mouth. <laughs> so this was an endearing scene as well. Talk is telling, uh, talking about how the army, all apparently there's a running joke about Tattersail's luggage. Yeah, yeah. So apparently she has a lot of luggage. She's got this giant trunk that she takes from place to place. And apparently anytime an enemy su- comes up out of nowhere or something surprising happens in the army, they all joke about, oh, it came from the sorceress's trunk. Um and it just really, it, it shows, not tells, like, the camaraderie of the army. Yeah. The camaraderie of this group of people who are under Dujek, you know. And Steven Erickson has, has told us, oh, okay, you know, they've they've gelled together, there's loyalty, but this is kind of a way of showing it. Yeah, um, And then not the first time that we've seen that. No. And then that, um, this kind of culminates in Tok's decision to protect Tattersail. Um, as they are, she's being questioned about the hound, and in particular, how the heck did you best a hound of shadow? You should be a smear on the floor right now. Mm-hmm. 
And she says, uh, luck, you know, it was, oh, it was Opon. Opon interfered. Uh, and Talk, who is very, um, he, he's been brought here to be able to like pick up on things. He can tell that she is lying, that she's holding something back. And he chooses to protect her out of loyalty to the second army over the empire. Yeah, I had notes on that section as well. I, I was, it was unclear to me if that's like something that is a, a trait that is unique to talk the younger or if it's something inherent in his training as a claw i took it to be the latter that it's yes that it's because he was trained to be a claw yeah which then sort of makes what happens immediately after that interesting because he gives his assessment and then he says lorne seemed disappointed mm-hmm. and if lorne was also raised yeah by the claw then does that mean that she can tell that they're both lying. Yep. That's the way I took it. Okay. All right. That's the way I took it as well, which means what he did is really fucking dangerous. And it's one more step toward the decision that we see him making at the end of this book um, to pretty much mutiny. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Against Lauren and against the Empress. Yeah. So Tattersale makes it out of the, the dinner party unexecuted. And uh, back to her room and... Uh, to the waiting arms of Captain Peron. Waiting arms of Captain Peron, you lucky gal. <laughs> so the first, my first note sort of in this section is she says, uh, those 20-odd years of service. So that sort of clarifies how long mm-hmm. she's been in the army. But she was a mage for like for like 80 years or something crazy. Yes, right? like, yeah. Like almost all of her life. And then, you know, she comes in the door and she's like, oh, I'm exhausted. Time to go to bed. And Perrin spoke close behind her. Tattersail. How thorough is your exhaustion? <laughs> I mean, that's not that the work? worst line I've ever heard, it, but it is. It's way up there. One of the most awkward lines. I mean, does that work? Like, I mean, do you feel like you could lay there? <laughs> You would have got to do much, baby. <laughs> I mean, you know. Ooh. First time's for me, second time's for you, baby. Come on. Like, that is really bad. And then he goes and, like, grabs her and, like, by the hand and, like, holds her hand. And she's like, oh, he's... So sweet, he's 23 years old, and I am 214. (laughs) All the other 214-year-olds just go right for the boob. (laughs) Standing there with... Wasting time. (laughs) Stop, was it, stop feeling my tits, what Adela didn't say? Stop grabbing at my tits. Stop grabbing at my tits, Peron. Anyway. Yeah, that was so awkward. Uh Uh-huh. I mean, I, I do not agree, but... Really? Come I, on. The romance between Tattersail and Piranha is... I like it. You can just oh, have your own opinion, rough. and I'll have my opinion. It's rough. I like it. So do Piranha. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> he like, he, if you like them sweaty and covering her in their own filth, I mean... She wasn't vomiting. She just was, you know, in a very romantic coma <laughs> <laughs> okay 
<laughs> all right, okay. This is a Sleeping Beauty story. Okay. Is, yes. All right, all right. He's Prince Charming. Something like that. Okay. So, dinner party, bow chicka wow wow, and now we have everyone leaving town. Mm-hmm. Lauren heads out in the company of her Talan Imas, who she names Tool. And he's like, all right, that's fair. I'll take it. Tool is the Jar Jar Banks of this section. What? Really? Oh, he's he's kick-ass. Don't get me wrong. Um, but some... I was going to say, he stabbed a guy in the tape. What more do you need? Eh, maybe Jar Jar Banks isn't the right, isn't the right comparison. But... But it got, but it got your attention. Um, the, <laughs> the, I'm um, making the face at you. <laughs> don't worry, don't worry, audience. She's making the face. So, <laughs> she, he walks up beside her, and she's like, "I wish you would announce yourself from further away." And he's like, "Okay." And then he just appears a hundred yards, hundred yards further up mm-hmm. the road, and it's like, "Hi." <laughs> he doesn't, he doesn't get subtlety at all or he does and he's fucking with her i I, you know what if that's the way it works out then i will retract my jar jar bink statement (laughs) so tool is is chatty for a zombie and um (laughs) their their vocabulary is usually quite limited (laughs) although as i was reading this you know i'd always thought of them as being zombies but they're really more like mummies i think um, so, but we kind of get, it's, it's helpful to us as the reader, because we get a little bit of exposition here about what the deal is with the Talani Mas. The Imas were, uh, one of the ancient races, and, um, in their fight against the, the Jagu, who are kind of like ogre. That's how you say that, okay. The kind of, these kind of like ogre creatures, um, they. But they're magical ogres. Yes, like magical ogres, giant magical ogres, and, um, the Emos perform some kind of binding to make themselves uh, undying so that they could uh, win this war. And that um, they were all bound to, to Logro except for uh, this, so uh, this, this tool. Um, and that they've been awakened several times throughout their history. Uh, the emperor um, was the one who kind of awakened them um, and that he is, he, but that he's bound by magic not to tell anyone certain things about that relationship. This is the most interesting part of that conversation, I thought. Uh, Tool, she said, have you ever met the emperor personally? And he says, as with all the Talanamas, I knelt before the emperor as he sat upon the first throne. The emperor was alone, Lorne asked. No, he was accompanied by one named Dancer. Damn, she thought. Dancer had died beside the emperor. Where is this first throne tool? He essentially says, I can't tell you. Then she says, Who are the Kron? They are coming, Tool replied. Sudden sweat sprang on the adjunct's brow. Logros legions, when they first arrived on the scene, numbered around 19,000. They were now believed to be, uh, now believed to have numbered 14,000. And the majority of those losses had come beyond the empire's borders. In the last Jagu War, were there another 19,000 Emos about to arrive? What had the Emperor unleashed? Tool, she asked slowly, almost regretting her need to persist in questioning. 
What is the significance of these Quran coming? The year of the 300th millennia approaches, the warrior replied. What happens then? Adjunct. The diaspora ends. So there's a lot mm-hmm. in that exchange yep. to unpack. Whole lot just got thrown at you. Yeah. So t- two immediate things uh, that pop out. The emperor hid the first throne. Like that's a new sort of mm-hmm. development. You know, and and it sounds like they're obviously looking for it, so mm-hmm. it must have some sort of significance. And then, you know, this other army of Talan Amas are coming, and they mark the end of the diaspora, mm-hmm. capital D. Yes. So what that means in this context, I'm not entirely sure, but it sounds like the end of the line. <laughs> it definitely sounds ominous, maybe because it's being told to us by a mummy, but... Definitely sounds ominous. Yeah. Is it the end of the diaspora for the Talana Moss or for everyone? That's sort of my question. Don't know. So then we have Crone. Oh, Crone. Flying around, being saucy. Oh, yeah. So Crone flies and goes to visit her friend, uh, Caladan Brood. I think Crone has a house for Caladan Brood. I think you're right. I think you're right, yeah. Uh, her allegiance appears to be split between Anamander Rake and the, quote, half-human warrior, Caladan Brood, mm-hmm. which causes me to ask, what's the other half? If he's half-human, is the other half mashed potatoes? Don't know. And if Caladan Brood was mashed potatoes from the waist down, would you go down on him? Yeah. I mean, (laughs) that's like a no-brainer right there. So speaking of Caladan Brood, the snapter for Chapter 10 gives us a little snippet of conversation between Caladan Brood and Calor, who is one of his lieutenants. Calor said... I walked this land when the Talani Mas were but children. I have commanded armies 100,000 strong. I have spread the fire of my wrath across entire continents and sat alone upon tall thrones. Do you grasp the meaning of this? Yes, said Caladan Brood. You never learn. Oh, snap! Yeah, and that's what I was talking about earlier when I said demonstrating, you know, how badass Caladan Brood is by Mm -hmm. having this other character espouse all of their incredible virtues Mm -hmm. and then get slapped down. (laughs) In Chapter 10, Talk the Younger meets up with Paran and confirms that Tattersail's accusations are true. Lorne and the Empress are out to get the bridge burners killed. He insists on accompanying Paran when he chases after the sorceress. Tattersail attempts to travel by Warren to Darugistan, but the proximity of Tool's magic makes her Warren unusable. She drops out into the Ravi Plain, where she is confronted by Balurdan. She discovers that Lorne and Tool are attempting to raise a Jagu tyrant, an insanely powerful member of one of the founding races. Tattersail risks everything in her attempt to avoid arrest, and an enormous magical fire results. Tak and Paran find her body sometime later with a set of skeletal footprints leaving the scene. Paran swears vengeance on Lorne and Tak agrees to help him stop her plans. 
Meanwhile, Crone visits her side bay, Caledon Brood. On her way out, she comes across a flock of her fellows who are being attacked by Hairlock. The, I mean, this is definitely the most interesting chapter. Absolutely. The most plot-relevant chapter. Yeah, for sure. So is the first part, the first part is Tok and Peron meeting... At the inn. At the inn, right? Yes. Tok shows up for a clandestine meeting at an inn, and it turns out that the meeting was, was requested by Peron. And um, the first thing Peron asks him is um, whether he's talking to him as a soldier uh, of the second or as a claw. And um, Tok says, yeah, that's not even a hard question. His, Mm -hmm. you know, he decides right there that his loyalty is is to the second army. Yeah. Which doesn't even exist anymore, by the way. Right. But, you know. But the loyalty is still still a thing. Yeah. I mean, it it doesn't exist according to Lazine, but that you can't just erase, Mm -hmm. you know, the bonds that people build. That's right. Uh, I think that's an important theme in this, in this book. And Tok confirms that Lauren is out to get the bridge burners. Peron, you know, clutches his pearls and all that, and yeah. then <laughs> decides he's got to he's got to head out after her. Yeah, I don't have too much to say about that particular section, uh, but but the next section, on the other hand, oh yeah, this is where it gets real. Yeah, Tattersail is traveling in a warren of high fear. So the warren that she, you know, the mag- magic users um, basically are tend to be tied to one source of magic, and it's a source that calls to them. Um, one thing that I, I thought was important to note that we learned in the last chapter, I didn't bring it up, was that Tattersail's warren, the warren of High Thier, is diametrically opposed to the warren of Chaos. Mm-hmm. So hers is the, if you look in the back at sort of the glossary of the warrants, hers is the warrant of light, but I, I took it as being also kind of of light and order. Mm-hmm. So she's traveling, but her warrant is under attack because um, the Talan and Moss, who is traveling, everyone's kind of traveling all in the same little area yeah, of the right. plains. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, she's not able to use her warrant in that bubble that Tool has cast. So she pops out into the real world thinking she's just going to take a break and... 20 feet in front of her Ugh. is Bullardin. And his dead girlfriend in a bag. <laughs> his sack, sack, sack of Sally that he's got <laughs> over there. So, yeah, and this is sort of where I, you know, where I was talking about earlier. She's, right before this is happening, she's sort of going on about, damn that captain, he distracted me from important details. I didn't mm-hmm. prepare you know, she did, after that, she'd experienced an unaccountable urgency to be on her way. Was it magic or was it the desire to get out of an awkward sexual situation with a 23-year-old? <laughs> hey, we've all been there. <laughs> we've all been there. I'm just going to leave. No, it's, you can keep my hoodie. <laughs> she claims that, you know, Opon is acting uh, on Peron, and, and it is. But then she comes out of this warren in this massive wilderness hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles of open wilderness and she's standing 20 feet in front of Belurden. Mm-hmm. Like, I feel like Opon was probably involved. In uh, probably. <laughs> probably. Probably involved in that. I do have to wonder, though, why Belurden would be so loyal to Tayshran. So... And I don't know that we know enough to really effectively answer that. Except that what we know of Belurden is he's not the sharpest thinker of the mages that we've met. Um, 
he, you know, you're at least at this point reading the book for the first time, my impression of him was that he was um, very much the sidekick to Night Chill, Hmm. was kind of the brains of the operation. She definitely has the better name. Uh, Absolutely. That she was kind of the brains of the operation and that a combination of always kind of being a follower and also intense, overwhelming grief Mm -hmm. has caused him to where he can't, like, he's going to stick with what he knows. Uh, He can't, like, even look at the possibility that that Tayshran was responsible for her death or that Lauren and the and that the Lauren and the Emperor Empire are going to do this terrible thing and awaken this tyrant. You know? Yeah, I, I guess I had forgotten that in their last interaction, she attempted to sort of mm-hmm. slap him around with the truth and he mm-hmm. wasn't buying it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, as you said, he couldn't he just couldn't look at that. And then of course, as you mentioned, she finds out from him or is able to confirm I think she must have had some suspicion, uh, but she's able to confirm from him that they're attempting to, you know, unentomb this Jagut tyrant who apparently was just buried but alive somewhere uh, near Darugistan. Yeah. Which, by the way, I did not catch until the third read through. Mm-hmm. So then, shit goes crazy. Yes, it does. I mean. Huge explosion of magical shittery everywhere. So, yeah, Bullardin tells Tattersail that, hey, you can't use your warren because there's this Talana Moss in the vicinity and you can't use magic around him or if, you know, shit will blow up. And um, Tattersail's like, oh, damn. But she notices that Bullardin still has the sack with Nightchill's remains upon which Tattersail had previously cast a spell of preservation. And we don't know why, but for some reason that causes her to think that there is a possibility that she would survive the encounter that's about to happen. In some fashion. Yeah. In some fashion. Yep. So she goes for it and gets burned to a crisp. And then what sort of happens afterwards is, you know, when when this happens, at least this, this is the way I'm taking it. So mm-hmm. please correct me. If I'm wrong, because if I'm wrong about this, then it fundamentally changes everything right. that I understand. So she attempts to open her warren, uh, which, as he mentions, will burn everything to a crisp. Mm-hmm. But then that, but because of that spell, she ends up getting, she ends up leaping into the remains of Nightchill. Belurden is dead, and Tattersail somehow remains in. Nightchill's corpse. But later in the next section, the Talana Moss tells us that it wasn't the Warren of High Thier that was opened. Mm-hmm. It was every Warren. Yes. Including Warrens that Lorne's not even right. aware of. Right. Which causes me to go back to an interaction we had with Krupp and one of his in one of his dreams mm-hmm. where he was sitting down with the god Karol, yes, who was talking about waiting for her. Mm-hmm. And I thought, you know, I presume that he must have meant the empress or, mm-hmm. you know, I wasn't sure what he meant, but it seemed to me, that's the only thing that makes sense is that somehow Karol is involved in that process. 
Yes. You know, he, he talks to Krupp about waiting for the woman and the Talani Moss. Those are the Awakeners. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And which, yeah. Yeah, of course, at that time, I didn't know what the Talana Moss are. And I guess the woman would be Lorne. Mm-hmm. But um, but some somehow in that event, maybe it's because when she opened that Warren, I don't know, maybe those other Warrens were open too. I, mm-hmm. I don't know. But but that power doesn't seem to be coming entirely from Tattersale. Right. So kind, of, kind of a bunch of, they kind of crossed the streams of their there Ghostbuster you go. guns, you know, <laughs> yeah. and um, unpredictable power just raged everywhere for like more than an hour. It wasn't like yeah. a flash and then it was gone. It all, so it, you know, it opened up the Warren and then it just basically sucked all the energy out of it. Mm-hmm. That's sort of the way it looks yeah. to me. And then that makes me wonder, okay, does that have any impact on like all the other magic users around? Like, you know, is uh is the Warren of High Thier kind of gonna need to chill out for a few days? And <laughs> what's the refractory period on <laughs> on High Warren? I you know, I don't know, but it was one badass conflagration. It was. So yeah, in the next section, this is where I got that from. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the next section, Lauren says, who could manage such a conjuring? Mm, yeah. There was one once of worshipers. There are none left, so he is no more. Mm-hmm. Uh, gone, Lauren whispered. Destroyed, Tool said. The warrior cocked his head. Strange, the source is indeed destroyed. But something else has been born. I sense it, a new presence, and that's where I suspect, you know, that's Tattersail. Right. I- I'm excited to find out what Tattersail is now. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, we've already seen a dude get shoved into a puppet, mm-hmm. and we've seen a girl who is a, a, an old crone and some ancient guy. Like, mm-hmm. we've seen some weird stuff go on. So, is night? Is it going to be a night chill Tattersail zombie? Mm-hmm. Is it just going to be Tattersail in there, mm-hmm. or is she going to be able to like transfer her soul somewhere else? Yeah. Or like, you know, don't really know how that's going to play out. But I'm excited to find out. I just realized I get to read tonight. Yes, you do. Yes. All right. <laughs> so the last thing I have in this section is, you know, at sort of the aftermath of all of this, uh, Lorne and Tool are sitting there and and Lorne is getting tired and trying to go to sleep. Yeah. And uh, she says, Tool had triggered something primordial in her mind and mm-hmm. with it came a deep, unreasoning fear of darkness. She stepped close to the amass. Fire is life, she whispered. The phrase seeming to rise from the depths of instinct. Tool nodded. Life is fire, he said. With such words was born the first empire. The empire of Emos. The empire of humanity. The warrior turned to the adjunct. You've done well, my child. And I can't help but think that is relevant. Mm-hmm. Like, you've done well, my child. Mm-hmm. Especially given the weird-ass nature of Lorne yeah. to be 20 years old and so incredibly powerful. Yes. Now, totally a hunch, but somehow I can't help but feel like that's more than a throwaway line. Yeah. So Crone and Caladan Brood have a little moment in our next scene. They're discussing his tactics. Mm-hmm. Um, and they also sensed what was going on, um, th- this magical conflagration. And um, they talk about how what was born on the plane was alone and scared— and that the Revi 
um, people are searching for it. Those are the people hmm. who live on the plane who are, you know, normally very peaceful. Um, they've kind of been sucked into this, um, this conflict and this war um, because everybody is sucked into the war. Yeah, you kind yeah. of have to choose a side, but they're fighting on the side of Caladan Brood. I, I hadn't caught that actually. That you, so I'm, I'm glad you pointed that out because what I did wonder, but I didn't bring it up in the discussion, is after that whole thing, she runs off to the northeast, which is not at all the direction of Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. It's the opposite way of mm-hmm. where she wants to be going. Mm-hmm. Not that she couldn't, you know, skirt around and come back, mm-hmm. but it. But I did sort of wonder about that. Now it makes me think that she's going to end up. You know, with the Reavy Plainsman. Mm-hmm. So we get sort of the uh, a sense of the the flavor of Caladan Brood, what he's about, sort of his uh, relationship with Animator Rake in particular. Um, these are both two very powerful kind of um, leaders of their people, uh, and they. Uh, don't maybe don't necessarily approve of each other at all times, but they seem to mostly be on the same side. Which was good because I we you know un- until this point we didn't really understand sort of the dynamic between them. Mm-hmm. Caladan knows that Rake is um, does not care for Opon, kind of has it in for Opon, but that if he manages to destroy Opon with his sword, that it's going to mean chaos for everybody. Um. So he is, his directive to Crone is to kind of keep an eye on him um, and that he is planning to kind of directly oppose him in that objective. Mm-hmm. So, and they talk also about sort of ground level tactics, you know, she right. says, um, how holds Fox pass? Well, Brute said, mostly Stannis conscripts on the other side. Malazan's finding them a reluctant ally. I was like, ooh, a Stannis reference. Uh-huh. I of, caught that too. Yeah, of course, anybody connected to Stannis is a reluctant ally. Yes. I mean, did you see what he did to his brother at Storm's End? Mm-hmm. You think he's going to stand up for the Empire? No, sir. Uh, so they're talking about all this stuff. Um, he And, you know, Crone kind of hops up on the table where he's like moving everything around. Uh, he glanced at Crone and raised a hairless eyebrow. You're scattering my armies. Stop it. <laughs> you know, and then she hops down, and I thought, is that foreshadowing? Mm. I like the dynamic between uh, Caladan, Brood, and Crone, though. They both are just kind of have this irreverent, joking, teasing yeah. sort of dynamic. Yeah, because I, I didn't know how much it was joking until sort of the end, you know, when they kind of give each other, you know, the little attaboy at the end. You could tell this is just kind of their dynamic. Mm-hmm. But that first time through, it wasn't clear. You know? Right. And then Calor, remember him? He was in the Snapter. He <laughs> he was around prior to the Talanamas. When the Talanamas were children. Were just children, right? And uh, he tries to convince Brood that he needs to assassinate Anamander Rake. Yes. You get the feeling that Calor wants to assassinate everybody, though, don't you? Could be. <laughs> I mean, he clearly never learned his lesson, according to Brood. So mm-hmm. whatever that means. Yeah, you had a throne, bitch. <laughs> <laughs> Where are you at now? My second in command. Bring me my horse, motherfucker. That's what I thought. 
So we go back to Peron and Tak the Younger when they find, uh, they come upon Tattersail's corpse. Now, at this point, everybody coming to this area is no longer shocking because there was a mile tall filler, you know, p- pillar of fire. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I would imagine everybody would end up coming to this section now. Um, but it causes uh, Peron, when he finds her corpse, to reflect on the curse of Hood's apparition when he stood at the gate. You know, mm-hmm. every everyone dear to you, everybody you know will suffer. And I, and I was like, hmm, does that, I mean, does that satisfy, you know, the, the little curse that it was Opon who said, somebody close to you will die. It wasn't, um, it wasn't Hood's messenger right. who said that. So, but I'm, um, but I'm wondering, does that satisfy? It seems a little cheap. Mm. Like if that's the, you know, if that's how you satisfy it. But anyway, um, and then, you know, Peron gets, I mean, he just, he just lays his cards out on the table. Mm-hmm. He says, uh, talking about Lauren, that heartless bitch has a lot coming to her and I mean to deliver it. Fine, Tot growled, but let's just be smart about it. Uh, and somehow, um, I, I doubt that Tok would be that flippant or casual about assassinating Lorne. And, and frankly, I doubt that Peron would be smart about it. You know, I think that Tok made his decision back in Pale when he insisted on accompanying Peron against Lorne's wishes. Yeah. Um, I, I think he made that decision probably even before that. Um, it's, it seems to me like it's something that's kind of been building. Mm-hmm. Um, well, and if Lorne knows he lied to her. Yes. Yeah, when he, he went out of his way to protect Tattersail, who he doesn't really know from Adam, except that she's a mage of the Second Army and that yeah. she's had his back, yeah. you know? So to me, that seems like a pretty natural progression. Yeah. Um, not that Tok has any, you know, affection for Peron. He barely knows him, but he's kind of... Um, decided to join him in open mutiny uh, because he's seen what the empire is trying to do to his, his army, his people and Peron, he's more motivated by being devastated about losing Tattersail and about, you know, the betrayal of the bridge burners who he's always admired. Yeah. Um, so it was kind of a more like personal loss. He said, you know, when he finds Tattersail's body, he's devastated. And he says, you know, everyone who's close to me, this happens to. Damn it, Tattersail. I hadn't even gotten to show you all my move. <laughs> so, yeah, there's a lot of history between Peron and Lorne that we don't know about. We don't know about uh, what what he went through when he was training under her. Mm-hmm. But um, it's a big departure from when he first joined up where he was like, I don't I just want to be powerful, you know, and mm-hmm. Lorne's like, well, come work for me. And he's like, oh, yeah. You know, to now, all of these years later, he, that loyalty is not there anymore. Well, I think Peron is loyal to the last woman to show him her titties. Because <laughs> the last person before Tattersail was Lorne, and he was loyal then. Well, that's true. And now it's Tattersail. I mean, it doesn't take much sometimes. <laughs> I'm just saying. We all know this. The empire is ruled by titties. So then we have Crone and uh, her chasing down Harlock. I don't really have a ton to say about this. I mean, it's fairly straightforward. Yeah, yeah. Uh, she finds some of her people. They're flying around. They're being 
engulfed in random fireballs and there's a creepy little puppet popping in and out of his warren and just you know lighting him up on fire um but that he is surprisingly powerful crone is an incredibly powerful being and she is sort of the the big mama of all the great ravens Mm -hmm. and she expects to attack hairlock and just you know, to be able to take him out quite easily, and she is almost taken out herself. Yeah, that is not what happened. Yeah. So that just tells us that Hairlock's power is growing. He's chewing on chaos, and then we we end everything back with Lorne and Tool, uh, and that is where we end this section. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, Tool chastises Lorne for not taking the danger seriously enough. Um, he says, "Power draws power." Which is basically, you know, we're going to, it's no coincidence that, you know, everyone on this plane keeps running into each other because they're they're kind of like a magnet for trouble. Yeah, yeah. I thought it was neat how she's like, I'm tired, I, I have to sleep now, and lays down, and then like two sentences later, she, she wakes up. Mm-hmm. Because... The way I read it was that time passes so quickly for him mm-hmm. that her laying there for eight hours to him felt like right. seconds. Right. Now, I don't know that that's necessarily what Erickson was trying to portray, but that's sort of the way I took it, that in his mind, she laid down and then she got back up, mm-hmm. even though eight hours had passed. Um, so I thought that was pretty cool. And then they have this little conversation at the very end, which I thought was which I thought was funny. Tell me, Tool, what dominates your thoughts? The IMS shrugged before replying. I think a futility adjunct. Do all IMS think about the futility? No, few think at all. Why? Why is that? The IMS leaned his head to one side and regarded her because adjunct. It is futile. <laughs> Good one. I take it back. He's not Jar Jar Binks. Uh-huh. Come on now. He's CP3O. Uh, you know what? I'll take it. <laughs> it's a promotion at least, right? He can be 3PO. <laughs> He's not 3PO. <laughs> All right. Are you ready for some listener interactions? I am. All right. Our first comment is from Yanov Cohen. Is it possible you'll start doing Rhythm of War in 2021? Listen, anything is possible. Anything is possible. <laughs> Two, 2021 is so far away. Uh, it's hard It's hard to say. I, I have no idea what, what we'll do next. Yes. Uh, yeah. And, and um, we will definitely have to just make that decision a little closer to the end of the book. But we yeah. appreciate uh, listeners' feedback as to what they would like to see. We do keep kind of a running list. And um, that definitely has a lot to do with our decision. Um, So keep it coming. Yeah, for sure. Katrina Knudsen says, all hail our new mascot, Duncan Idaho Dukes. (laughs) Tell us everything you see fit to share about him. Is he a good boy or a very good boy? Um, Duncan Idaho Dukes is a very good boy. He's a good boy. (laughs) You're right. He's a good boy. (laughs) It's so funny because when we had kids, I came into that task knowing a lot about kids. I had a lot of siblings. I did a lot of babysitting. I, 
you know, my family did foster care when I was a kid. So there was babies. I was good to go on knowledge about babies. I know nothing about puppies, <sighs> nothing. And uh, I just, I felt like, I definitely have felt like a new mom. Like, I just don't know what I'm supposed to be doing. Yeah, so, for sure. But I, de- I feel like I definitely, I definitely did the new mom thing. Like when you bring a new baby home and you're like, my baby's wonderful. They just sleep all the time. But you know, yeah, they do that for two days and then, and uh-huh. then all of a sudden. So we did the same thing for like I feel like two for two weeks. Duncan was just this angel. He hadn't like he was just you know, I don't know. He just never does anything wrong. He never bites. He, yeah. and now he's starting to come out of his shell a little bit more and be adjusted to us. And um, yeah. I was like, he never barks, and now he barks all the time. Yeah. <laughs> so, but it's okay. We're completely smitten with him, so. Um, we like him. We do. He's awesome. Yeah, we like him. We should have done that at the end, because I could just keep talking about him. <laughs> no, that's, that's bring it back. He, he does it have an Instagram. <laughs> yeah, he already has his own Instagram. Before we even brought him home, he had his own Instagram. Don't tell me how that that's it. worked, but. We went to the breeder. We um we did pick him out and um when we by the time we got home, he had an Instagram with like sixty followers. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah. So if you ever wonder if fifteen year olds know how to navigate social media better than you do, <laughs> the answer yeah. is yes, they do. Uh, Gordon Ross says almost all I can remember from this section is that giant ravens happened. Nice birds, asshole, Romanda Rake. <laughs> I see what you did there. I see what you did. <laughs> Theo says, I hadn't realized until chapter eight that Hairlock was controlled by Quick Ben. I really dug the five wooden fingers and the string spell to control Hairlock. Yes, yeah. I dug that as well. And yeah, I don't know that I don't know that controlled is the right word, but he definitely seems uh, beholden to him in some fashion. He's he's yeah. bound to him, and I would say would say he is controlled. He's at least compelled to follow his commands. Yeah. Although um, we we can see that his power over him is weakening. Yeah, and then he kicked him on the way out, which <laughs> just, seemed that like kind a, of a funny visual. Yeah, but I feel like he needed to get away from him. Like he was really struggling to keep a rain on him yeah and so he was like go do this whack yeah <laughs> bye i feel like that is the nuclear bomb that is going to blow up at some point theo says i like the fact that hairlock is so clearly flawed we know he's powerful but we're really seeing how his completely complete inability to read the room has hamstrung him he seems to have missed all the subtle points that tattersail and quick bun have already gathered yes that is mm-hmm. a really good observation um, about hairlock he is completely he's so self-focused that he he just misses so much of what's going on around him. Yeah, and he's he's bound to be without any allies. Like he you know, he's he's put himself in a corner where he can only rely upon his own power because he's alienated everybody. Everyone's mm-hmm. terrified of him. Uh Theo also says, "Why is Sorry still with the bridge burners though?" I mean, if we accept that their desire is to get closer to the Empress uh, and sticking with the group that the Empress likes the least seems a bit odd. Uh, I can't work out if Amanus and Cotillion are just getting uh, to care for the team or uh, actually if they actually have a proper plan. Mm-hmm. That's a good question. That is not something I had really thought of before. I just sort of took it at face value in the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And then it makes you wonder, do they know something about the future that we don't know? Mm -hmm. You know, where at some point, sorry, and is going to be near the Empress? Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, hard, hard to say. That seems like more of a power of Opon, mm-hmm. um, and it also seems that that's what they're relying upon. Then, with Opon being in the game, sort of throws all that out of balance. Mm-hmm. He adds to this. Um, also, it seems like Amanus and Cotillion couldn't uh, just take over another person; otherwise, they would have. So, what do we think it is that allows them to have grabbed Sari over a series of people leading up to the Empress? That is a good question as well. Don't have an answer for that. I I mean, I take it that they could, uh, that they could possess somebody else, but don't want to. Mm-hmm. That's my take. Right. Now, I again, back to the former question, I don't know why mm-hmm. they so like this, you know, supposedly inconspicuous 15-year-old girl, who, by the way, is never inconspicuous. Everybody is like, that like, bitch is creepy. wrong like, with her. <laughs> like, she's not inconspicuous at all, right? Um, so, yeah, why they like her, I don't know. But mm-hmm. but I, I take it that this is, a you know, who they're choosing to stick with. Mm-hmm. Uh, Theo has a question about Lorne's dislocated shoulder. Everything I've heard about these is that the longer you leave it, the worse it gets, and they're a tough thing to heal. Uh, that there's a vague mention of it healing quickly in chapter 10 and not being as bad as she thought. But am I wrong and this is not bad? Or am I right and Erickson doesn't know how bad it can be? Or am I right and Erickson is making us realize how badass Lorne is? Listen, you just can't throw up a mast in a fishing boat in a matter of like minutes. It doesn't work that way. But no, I think it is the third option here. I think that... Um, it's a demonstration of Lauren's, you know, she's she's human, but she is kind of like an upgraded human. There's something she's half mashed potatoes. I don't know. There's something <laughs> weird going on there. Theo also says, uh, there's something called the first throne and the emperor wants it. But why? Man, it sounds badass. Maybe, maybe that's, that's all. Maybe. It's, maybe it's just a really badass throne. <laughs> Yeah, I, I don't know that that's the Empress's objective at this point. I think Lauren kind of asked that question of Tool because she was kind of curious about it. But at, at this point, it's hard to say. I, I took, I mean, I wouldn't say it's like a singular goal, mm-hmm. but I took it that it is a goal. Mm-hmm. But we'll see. All right, so here's a question for you. Caladan Brood, he's not exactly Rake's ally, but it feels like his fight with the Empire is personal while Rake is because he's being paid. Is that your impression as well? Uh, I don't know that I would agree with that. I think, I mean, I do think their motivations come from sort of different levels. Um, I don't know enough about Caladan Brood to say, you know, how deep his sort of hatred is other than they're in the Rivy Plain and damn it, that's his territory. Mm-hmm. Um, so it seems to me like that would be, you know, a pretty deep commitment on his part. But I take it Anamanda Rakes is more of a, of a thing of pride mm-hmm. and the fact that they want to destroy, you know, magic and they're doing everything they can to take over the world. Mm-hmm. You know, so I, I see Anamanda Rakes also mm-hmm. as a sort of existential threat, but I don't feel like I feel like Anamanda Rake doesn't really take them quite as seriously mm-hmm. as Caladan Brood does. Mm. So I would say it's true that their commitments are not the same 
But I don't think uh, Animander Rake is there just because he's getting paid. Mm-hmm. <laughs> when Paran meets up with Tattersail's new week-old corpse zombie vessel, will they still hook up? I mean... <laughs> Based, I mean, based on his track record so far, I'd say yeah. I mean, unless he's really into girls with feet. Because <laughs> she ain't got no feet. <laughs> Nicole Dateloff says, what the heck is a bargas? I don't know. It's just a big motherfucker. That's all so, that I- So bargas are humanoid people. Yeah, they're people, but they're, they are um, sort of a primitive kind of tribal culture. Um, but very large, covered in tattoos. Neanderthals. Yes. But yeah, so similar to Neanderthals. Eric Allgaier says, can the Duchess explain to us what we should understand about ascendance at this point in the book? I think I might have missed some of the details, and I don't want to research it for fear of spoilers. I think what's kind of safe for you to know about ascendance in the book are that um, they're obviously very powerful beings um, that are tied to the specific warrens of power and that they seem to be sort of organized in, in a similar way. So you'll have like the, the kind of high, the high King of a house of a warren and then the sort of the underlings of that person. So we've got, and then they sort of come and go and they can be, they can be destroyed by mortals the houses can rise in power, fall in power, that kind of thing. They kind of are, are, are tied to the realm, but they don't necessarily just chill there all the time. I think that's pretty much what, would you agree? I mean, yeah, based on what I know, Manhattan Beach, California in 1977, kind of like, you know, earliest uh, West Coast American, po- no, that's the Descendants, I'm sorry, mm. never mind. Nicole Dietloff says, uh, Peron seems to be improving as a character. Maybe it's because he's starting to have a personality and his own initiatives. Maybe it's because Tattersail says he's good in bed. Tough to say. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I mean, it does make him more likable. He's clearly overwilling, you know, willing to overlook hygiene. So you're in an army camp. <laughs> if you have expectations regarding hygiene, uh, you know, battle army camp. Let me put myself back into being 22 years old and in the army. Yep, check. Right there. <laughs> <laughs> totally doing that. I take I take it all back. I take it all back. Apparently, with age comes standards. I <laughs> <laughs> and thank God. Yeah, fair enough. I'm, I'm down. <laughs> See, you've turned me around. You've turned me around. All right, are you ready for some predictions? Yes. All right, I have... Several predictions this time. A lot of times I struggle to come up with predictions. Like, what am I going to do for predictions? Uh, Not this time. This time they just sort of flowed, Uh, which I don't know if that means they're going to be better or worse. We'll find out. But here Mm -hmm. they go. Uh, Prediction the first, when Tayshren attacked the mages, Mm -hmm. they wanted to get rid of Tattersail specifically because of her relationship to the old emperor. Right. So that's a it hasn't exp- I mean that hasn't really expressly been stated, but it seems to me like that's what we'll find out. Um and two, they want to keep Tayshren around because while he is a powerful mage, he is a weak 
person, so he is easily manipulated. Number three, the Empress sent mages into the mouse quarter to indiscriminately kill witches and then sweep through with the claw to recruit people who could potentially become radicalized. It was a deliberate and measured act. Mm. Number four, the first throne is in the Shadow Warren. Okay. Number five, Crone is going to betray Caladan Brood. Okay. And my last is Caladan Brood does not survive the novel. Mm, all right. Those are my predictions. I like them. Write it down. You can find us on Twitter at the DND Podcast. That's D as in David, N as in Nancy, D as in David Podcast. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash group slash the DND group. You can find us on all the social medias by simply searching for the Duke and Duchess Podcast. Just so you know, I have, I'm sure everyone knows this by now, but on iTunes, I have renamed it the Duke and Duchess Book Club mm-hmm. because I realized that having something called podcast on a podcast network <laughs> was kind of redundant and unnecessary. <laughs> so on iTunes, it's now the Duke and Duchess Book Club. It's like on The Boys, that character's named Black Noir. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Good night, everybody. Good night. You have a very important text message oh. to look at first. Oh, okay, right. I don't have a text message. What? Um, Facebook Messenger, maybe? No, I swear I texted you. Oh, God, who did I text? Oh, hold on, hold on. I just got it. Oh, <laughs> <shit>. <laughs> Yes, they do look like vaginas. <laughs> okay, right? Ooh.